From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. One of the most concerning outbreaks of COVID-19 in the country right now is taking place in western New South Wales. Towns like Wilcannia and Walgett have high Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and some of the lowest vaccination rates in the state. When the pandemic hit the region, only 8% of Indigenous people were fully vaccinated. Now, with the virus spreading fast, there are serious concerns for the community. Today, Research Associate at ANU, Bayami Williamson, on the situation on the ground in Western New South Wales. It's Wednesday, August 25. Bayami, can you tell me a bit about the town that you live in and what it's like there at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I, I live in a little town called Gadooga. So we're right up, sort of tucked underneath the armpit of New South Wales and Queensland because we're only about sort of 30 k's from the Queensland border. And so, yeah, we're just kind of right out in the northwest of New South Wales and it's a, just an awkward little spot of the country that not many people go through. Like 99 out of 100 Australians wouldn't even know where Gadooga is. And so we kind of thought with those odds that we were pretty safe from COVID, from the pandemic. But it has just slightly crept out from Sydney and crept out here. And as it's, as it's kind of crept closer and closer and closer, I mean, it went from Sydney to Newcastle and it jumped from Newcastle to Armidale to Tamworth to Dubbo to Walgett. And it's kind of just inched closer and closer and closer with each geographical area. I'd like it to, I don't know, just like a big kind of like a dark cloud that's just hovering over the community at the moment. So everyone's pretty on edge. It's certainly a feeling of being quite scared and fearful. Mm. And right from the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk, a lot of emphasis on trying to make sure that areas like where you live, where there's a lot of Indigenous people living, that they were well protected from from having outbreaks like this. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Could you take me back and talk to me about the kind of the fear and the hope from the beginning of the pandemic about how things could be? Yeah, so when the, I guess when the pandemic first hit, we all knew, and when I say we, I mean like all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people knew that this is a really risky time for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I'm, I'm a Yuwadiyo man, and this is our traditional country, our traditional homeland. So this is um, my grandmother's home community. In our communities, I guess people still hold stories of diseases and mass killings from diseases in for, for our people. People are very aware, aware and cognizant of the uh, state of health of a lot of our community members. And we also know that Our elders are not many and not in good health generally. And so the alarm bells were just not just ringing, they were like in full voice really at the start of the pandemic. But we have really good support services in terms of medical support in our communities through our coordinated community-controlled health services. Indigenous Australians were one of our greatest concerns at the start of this pandemic. And so they always have been a very um, clearly defined, um, vulnerable community. Like, um, And it seemed, at least in the first few months, to be matched by the both the state and federal government's kind of acknowledgement that Aboriginal communities are, are, are really vulnerable and need support and need protecting. 
and our plans and policies have reflected that. Uh, so this is a key issue to be addressed in the strategy and the rollout plans. Uh, a lot of really good work was done you know, in, in the first 12 months and then obviously the vaccines were developed and um, the federal government created a, a plan to immunise the population. So that, that was the plan, as you say, but how did that actually bear out in reality? Were there many people able to get vaccinated? What was it like to, to try and go through that process? Yeah, so out here in Gadooga, we were waiting for our vaccination clinic, like for six months or something. So we were first told in um, April that the Walgett Aboriginal Medical Service, so Walgett's 100 and about 150 kilometres from Gadooga, but it services our little medical centre up here. Walgett Aboriginal Medical Services told us that they were kind of organising the vaccinations and we were, all, we were all really happy with that. And so they were just waiting for their supplies and then we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited. And then it wasn't until sort of a month ago that we got word that the vaccination clinic, our one, so, so their vaccination clinic was they were going to come up in the bus, inoculate everyone and then leave and then come back three late, weeks later and do it again. So it was scheduled for the 12th of August, a lot longer length of time than people would have liked, but we were happy to get it anyway. But then on the 11th August, the day before our vaccination clinic was when the positive case arose in Walgett. And so bang, just like that, our clinic was cancelled. And so, you know, you've got these really vulnerable communities who are not vaccinated at all, who have no protection against this virus. And I think that all of that came to a crushing head when the virus hit out here and then started to spread. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloan Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Bayami, where did those first cases of COVID-19 in Western New South Wales come from? Can you tell me what we know about what happened exactly? Yeah, sure. So there were two big instances of COVID arriving out here. The first one was a case in Dubbo. Two cases have been identified and therefore from 1pm today, Dubbo will go into one week's lockdown and I understand community leaders and... Um... So Dubbo is like our regional centre and the regional service hub for basically most, if not all, of northwestern New South Wales, talking about a place almost double the size of Tasmania, all being serviced by Dubbo. And my message for those all in Dubbo, we know how interconnected those regions and those communities are, is to please follow the health orders, the stay-home orders, and try and minimise mobilisation. 
So Dubbo is the hub. Everyone goes to Dubbo, which means that it got into Dubbo, everyone goes to Dubbo, and then it just, bang, just went right out into the communities. 23 new cases in Dubbo. There's three new cases at Wellington, one new case at Narromine. Bathurst has four, that includes that one. Now it's really important to understand that those cases in Dubbo have been overwhelmingly Aboriginal people. So the first case was an Aboriginal person spread into an Aboriginal family, and then it spread into the Aboriginal kids in Dubbo. More than 90 cases of COVID-19 have been confirmed in the region, home to some of the country's most vulnerable First Nations communities. So that was the first one. The second one was a young guy who was in Dubbo but then got picked up by the police and he got taken to Bathurst Correctional Facility whilst he was awaiting his... I got arraignment while he was awaiting for trial and he got tested for COVID going in, as is the policy for Corrections New South Wales. Now, he was in there for about three or four days. He had his bail hearing, he was released, he went to his home, went home to Walgut. The day after he got back to Walgut he got the results back and he was positive. So he got tested going in, didn't get his his results back for more than four days and that's how it got into Walgut. And then it's just kind of really spread significantly throughout all of northwestern New South Wales and particularly through the Aboriginal communities out here. Has it reached the town where you live? Yes. So here in Gadooga... So Gadooga's got just a bit over 200 people. It's a really small place. It's like five or six streets, you know, and most of us are all family and related to one another. So we've got, I think, sort of six positive cases in Gadooga at the moment. So six people out of 200, you're talking about sort of 3% of our population. So it's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty freaky for a really little small town to have people here infected because everyone knows everyone. We know the family and it's, um, it's heartbreaking for them and it's heartbreaking and heartbreaking for everyone and it's really scary for the whole community. I can imagine how worrying that must be. Before this outbreak hit, you said that vaccines were not really that easy to access in your community. Is that changing now? Yeah, so it seems that they finally have put a rush on the vaccines and getting them out here. So we see increasingly a lot of communities getting access to vaccinations. But it is concerning to us what's happening in Western New South Wales. Of course it is. And that's why the additional resources and efforts and doses and, and masks and, and, uh, and OSMAT teams and all of this are being provided to ensure that we can, we can address that, that situation. We do see it as... Which is fantastic, but albeit should have been done months ago, but it seems that this government, these multiple governments seem to only want to respond when things go when things go to shit rather than getting on the front foot and, and, and planning ahead. Rather than looking backwards, let's look forwards. Let's look what's happened in the last few days. Extraordinary efforts, literally thousands of vaccinations happening in places as far-flung as, as Walgett and Burke and Barorana and many other places in, in western New South Wales. And this is a- but overwhelmingly overwhelmingly people are coming out, people want to be vaccinated, people are desperate to be vaccinated. They just haven't had access to it. And so it's good that now when they're coming, we're seeing whole of communities coming out to get vaccinated, which is just amazing. Where there have been cases, we see these pop-up testing clinics done and carried out really, really rapidly, really quickly, really effectively, which is great. But yeah, I question why why it took an outbreak for us to finally get what we, I guess, Aboriginal people were told that they would get right from the start. And what lessons do you think that we should be taking from all of this then? Because 
what's happening right now where you are, it could happen anywhere. It could happen in South Australia or in the Northern Territory. It's already happening in parts of regional Victoria. So do you think that this should be seen as a wake-up call? Yes, I think that even in the Aboriginal community, we were lulled into a false sense of confidence after the first year or so of the pandemic because we were doing really well. We were, you know, no Aboriginal person that I'm aware of has um, passed away as a result of COVID-19. Communities did really well at keeping their people safe. And I think that this is just a wake-up call of this reality has not escaped us. We need to take swift and assertive and smart steps to to continue to make safe our communities and we really need the government to be listening and supporting our our peak organisations who know what they're doing and are really good at what they do. Well, um, all the best over the coming days and the coming weeks. I hope that you and, and your friends and your family stay safe. What's your plan for, uh, for the days ahead? We're just waiting for our test results to come back from the pop-up clinic, actually, and then we're just going... Got to go and try and do a bit of a, a bit of a shop and then bunk it down for the week. And um, the, the river's running next to town, so if we're lucky, we'll be able to go and sort of catch some fish or something. But, yeah, so other than that, it's just, um, we're just bunkering down, just trying to wait for this storm to blow over. Mm-hmm. Well, all the best, and thank you for talking to me about it. Thank you. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news today, Victorians aged between 16 and 39 will now be able to access the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine at state-run hubs, with over 800,000 first-dose vaccine appointments opening up across the state today. The push to increase vaccination rates among young people ramped up after health authorities in Victoria recorded 50 new locally acquired cases of COVID-19 in the state. In New South Wales, authorities recorded 753 new COVID-19 cases and the ACT recorded a daily record of 30 new cases on Tuesday. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.